We return to our study in 1 Samuel today, so 1 Samuel chapter 27, and as you are gathering there, you're finding your place, um, and I find mine. <laughs> well, you know, I titled the sermon today, The Lies of Despair, The Lies of Despair, and uh, I, I was just thinking, you know, the Lord hasn't instructed me much when I was preparing for this passage, and I wish I, wish I didn't, uh, you know, I heard this sermon before, <laughs> because there were moments in my life where uh, despair was taken over, um, and it is um, hard to, to get out of that pattern. In any case, so as you, you find your place, um, I found this story interesting to illustrate the point. Um, you know, many of you probably heard this news before. Lawrence John Ripple is a Kansas man who robbed a bank in 2016 to get away from his wife. What? He told the police that he was hoping to get caught so he would get prison time to escape his wife. Ripple took the guilt uh, took the guilty and telling the judge that he pleaded guilty, telling the judge that he had a heart surgery that left him depressed when he committed the bank robbery. Well, there's more. His public defender told the court that Ripple had lived a law-abiding life and was a stable, he had a relation, stable relationship with his wife. But driven by despair, Ripple had astute, but a, had an astute and but foolish plan. He handed a note to the bank teller in Kansas City demanding cash and warning him he had a gun. Ripple took the money, $2,925, and went to sit in the lobby where he told the guard that I'm the guy you're looking for. <laughs> Officers arrived quickly and an FBI agent wrote in an affidavit that Ripple had early been arguing with his wife. He told investigators, he wrote the note in front of his wife, telling her that he'd rather be in jail than at home. Ironically, he was sentenced to six months of home confinement <laughs> after pleading guilty. You see, we come across of comical but sad stories such as Mr. Ripple's. The issue is when people are hopeless and driven by despair, they do the most unimaginable things. Driven by despair, people lie, get involved with addictive behavior, attempt suicide, or even commit crimes like robbing a bank. I realize that not everyone in despair will commit a crime or pursue self-destructive behavior, but when hopelessness settles in, we can find many subterfuges. When one, move, when one, one remove gods from the equation, there is no limit for foolish decisions. In our text today, we will see the hero of Israel, David, acting on desperation. And when faith wavers, the Lord's chosen servant sometimes resort to desperate measures that place them in a precarious position. This happened before. Um, and you remember, if you want to go back in our sermon series in chapter 21, we had a sermon titled Desperate Times, right? And David had desperate measures then. It's not the first time that David had done so, but this time the lies driving his despair will entangle him to an even greater degree. So let's turn to our passage. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul, and there is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then, with, uh, 
Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, and he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maoch, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelites and Abigail the Carmelites, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I now have found favor in your sight, let me then give, uh, let them give me a place in one of the cities of, in the country, that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now, David and his men went up and raided the Jesurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to shore, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive. And he took away the sheep and the cattle and the donkeys and the camels and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, where have you made a raid today? And David said, against the Negev of Judah and against the Negev of the Jeramelites and against the Negev of the Canaanites. David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath saying, otherwise, they will tell about us, saying, so has David done, and so has been his practice all the time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has surely made himself odious among his people, Israel. Therefore, he will become my servant forever. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your man. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you just looking at this text uh, with a fear and trembling as we uh, see your servant in these deep struggles and poor responses. Lord, I do pray that you would help us to not think about how this text were applied to someone else, but that you would use this text to open our eyes and to warn us and to turn our hearts to you so that we might not live as those who have no hope. Lord, give us hope. Give us hope through your promises and the encouragement that we receive from your word. Father, I pray that you would bless our time. Uh, teach us. Help us to focus and be free from distractions. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus, amen. So David has all but turned his back on his destiny and compromises his identity as the Lord's servant. This chapter illustrates what can happen when God's people in desperation seek their own security at the expense of their identity and integrity. Certainly, this is an important lesson for the exilic readers of this, the history. Remember that first, first and Second Samuel were written for the people of Israel that were in Babylon in exile to remind them, to warn them not to fall in the same mistakes of their kings. 
The story has enough tension to hold our interest. But what makes this story so intriguing and difficult is the fact that it is godless. I don't know if you noticed this, but there is a, a literary feature there in chapter 27, and that is the absence of God's name. The text does not mention God, does not say precisely or directly what Yahweh is doing in this episode, does not even inform us what is the Lord's point of view in all of this. Nor is there any overt indication of the writer, writer's position. He offers no moral commentary on the events. He simply does not say if he thinks that David is in the right or in the wrong. His silence in the matter does not necessarily mean that he approves of David's course. One can report an action without endorsing it. As if, you know, I may testify about a robbery without approving the act of theft. But how is David's activity here to be evaluated? We can only look for clues. Curiously, the text seems to, be seems to be sympathetic to David's difficulty, and yet presents him as in the wrong. If anything, the record of the Lord's repeated protection should have convinced David that the Lord was able to keep him even in Israel. From chapters 18 through chapter 26, nine chapters, Again and again, the Lord proved himself to be faithful and to protect David. Commentators are divided on how one should see David in this passage, which only proves that a godless text are tough, are tough to interpret. But even in a godless text, teaches godly truths gives godly direction to the Lord's people. Why do I say this? Because we can always learn what godly path to take as opposed to taking that only seems to be right to us. Paul illustrated this principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. You're probably familiar with this, this passage. He says, Now these things, and he's writing about the people of Israel in the past and their sins, it says, now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So as, as we look into this text today, I want us to, to be thinking along those lines. Lord, I know that there will be moments of despair, and maybe you're right in the middle of one. How can I not fall into the same trap? How can I take heed and do not fall? Those things were written for our instruction to teach us. So I want to encourage you to observe the lies of despair that David bought in so that you can avoid falling into the same trap. And the first lie that we will see today is the dejection's lie, or the lie of discouragement. So I tried to put a little sentence there to kind of summarize what David is thinking. And what he's thinking on this, verses 1 through 5, is there is no way out. There's no other solution. I'm discouraged. I am left behind with no other choice. Verse 1, he says, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. Now I want to remind you that just before this, David has, a, has assured his armor bearer, Abishai, that the Lord would eliminate Saul, whether by natural causes or in battle. Turn to chapter 26. Let's just go back here for a moment to verse 10. This is the same person. <laughs> and he says, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies. And he will go down into the battle and perish. 
In mentioning the second possibility, he speaks of Saul perishing. Right? That he will, he will perish eventually. That word in Hebrew, sapa, is the same word that we read in the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 27. It says, I will be the one perishing here. Before, he believed that the Lord will take care of Saul and he didn't need to worry about it. Now he believes that there's no other solution that he is going to be the one perishing by the hand of Saul. Despite assurances from, and I, I'm going to just quote here a few examples from Jonathan, his friend, even Saul made promises to David that he will be one day a king. Abigail, that he will indeed prosper. David's faith in God's promise wavers. He says, there is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. And twice in this verse, David speaks of escaping. Five times before this, chapter 19 and um, through chapter 22 and 23, David reported to, be, to have escaped from Saul's persecution. God's providence protected David from Saul's spear. Remember the many attempts that he had to spear David? It protected from Saul's officers who came to arrest him in his own home. It protected him from the Philistine king Achish when he made himself mad. Remember that? And, the, and he also protected them from the fickle residents of Keilah that turned David in. But now he decides to take matters into his own hands, bringing about his own escape, and again, leave the land where his destiny is to be realized. The first time he did this, he encountered an even greater danger, ended up being humiliated before being told by the Lord to return home. You remember in chapter 21 when David made himself mad and he started let his saliva to go down his beard and he started acting like a madman. He returned home humiliated. Now this second excursion to Gath will prove to be no different. David seems quite convinced that this is the, this, his only security rests west of the plains of Philistia, in Philistia. This time he brought his 600 men, an army really, and his wives. Um, I wonder, maybe he felt a little bit safer now. So they settled in Gath, maybe the first full night of sleep that he had in months. Now we should have known it. We heard what David had said before. Turn to chapter 26 again and see some of his... It, this is already brewing on his heart. Verse 19. He's talking to Saul. And he says, Now therefore, please let my, my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred up you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is man, cursed are you before the Lord, for they have driven me out today so that, pay attention on that, you have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go, serve other gods. What is he saying? I can't worship in a temple anymore. I can't worship in a tabernacle. I can't stay in the land of Israel. I'm being forced to go to a land where pagan gods are worshipped. He's already considering this. Now, we shouldn't be too surprised to see him heading to Gath again. He did already in chapter 21. Nor can we really blame him. Hunted, tracked, and attacked by Saul treacherously exposed, making thrilling escapes and executing daring escapades. Nine chapters of full 
of thrilling narrative. It is the stuff, a commentator says, it is the stuff that makes for great movies, but it takes the toll on real people. How much pressure can one endure? In any case, it seems that his plan works. In verse 3 and 4 here, it says that David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his man, and with their households. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, and so he no longer searched for him anymore. It worked. Now I wanted to remind you that this time, this is the same Achish from chapter 21, the same king that he pretended to be mad in front of. And Gath is the same hometown of who? None less than Goliath. I mean, David killed Goliath, their champion, their hero. And here's going to his hometown. Uh, in my studies, I, I came across of this, um, an archaeological finding that points to the existence of uh, King Achish. So if we have uh, one of these slides there, uh, this tablet was found in the city of Akron, which is one of the five Philistine cities in, um, in Israel. You can, one day you go and visit this museum in Jerusalem, you can see it for yourself. But that is called the Akron Royal Dedicatory Inscription, which is a limestone slab discovered during the excavations in the Tel Mikne. It confirms the identification of Akron as one of the Philistine capital cities described in the Bible. And the inscription is unique because it contain the contains the name of, biblical, of a biblical city and five of its, its rulers, two of whom are mentioned as kings in the texts other than the Bible. I mean, we don't need those things to confirm that the Bible is true, but it's pretty cool when we see that um, being there. And so in one side there, you see the, you know, how technology helps to reconstruct a, a language there, Canaanite ancient language. And this is what it says. The temple which he built, who built it? Akish, or uh, in, in the original Yaksu, and the Hebrew uh, translation of that is Kish. Akish, son of Padi, son of Yasti, son of Ada, son of Yair, ruler of Akron. For Pati, his lady, this is their divinity, may she bless him and protect him and prolong his days and bless his land. Scholars generally accept that the name Yaksu or Kish in the Akron inscription is the same as Achish, the Philistine king of Gath in the time of Saul and Solomon. As this is going to show up again in 1 Kings chapter 2. Now, before we move on to the next act, I, I just want to draw your attention to the thinking that led David to this move. It, it points to one of faith's collapsing fits that our hero is just displaying here. The Hebrew text actually originally, uh, in the original states, David said to his heart, maybe you can even see that little observation there, um, on, a, on a side note, when it says that he said to himself, he, the original is, he spoke to his heart. He talked to himself. And, and here's what he's, he talked to himself. Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul, and there is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. So in his own, in his own words, he's saying there is no way out. I need to go to the enemy's camp. It is as if David has forgotten his own words. Think about Psalm 11, verse 1, where David says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? He's thinking here on a dialogue with a friend that is saying just, just flee like a bird to the mountain so you're not killed. 
And he says, how can I do that? The Lord is the one that I'm going to run for refuge. I take refuge in him. And now he's saying there is no way out. Yes, David was under severe pressures here. And yet at this point, he looks to Philistia rather than to the Lord as his security. Although kingship is not at stake in our situations and applying this to ourselves, but we still know that the subtle danger of leaning on something else and less than the everlasting arms of God. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. In his dejection, David was talking to himself, and he kept saying to himself, what he kept saying to himself determined his action. He believed a discouraging lie that says there is no way out of this. So what you say and keep saying to the center of your soul will direct your way. All of us, the commentator says, all of us propagandize our souls. That is, we constantly talk to ourselves. Not many of us do that audibly. I, I tend to talk to myself sometimes out aloud. And I had a, a strange season that I used to use this British accent and <laughs> weird. But we all do. We all talk to ourselves, either audibly or not out aloud. And you listen. You listen to yourself. You see, scriptures is full of examples of self-talk. Let me read a few examples to you here. Um, Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says to his heart, There is no God. And because of that, they are corrupt, they have committed abominable deeds, and there is no one who does good. Why is that? That people can go unhindered and, doing, and sinning and doing whatever pleases them? Because he firmly believes and he's telling to himself, there is no God, there is no accountability for what we do. We have another example of this in the New Testament. Let's turn to Luke chapter 12. You're, you might be familiar with that passage. Luke 12. And look into verses 16 through 20. You will remember how Jesus depicted the farmer whose silos and bank accounts were full. Remember that? And he says to himself, the farmer says, and he began reasoning Within himself, he was meditating on this. What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'm going to do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all, store all my grain and all my goods. And then pay attention to this one. What did he say? I will say to my soul, soul, have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will, who will own what you have prepared? All of that started with the planning, talking to himself. Foolish talk, but he was talking to himself. So here's the point. What you say to yourself is the first step to what you do. The junk you tell yourself can make a difference. That is why we're warned in Proverbs 3.5 to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean in your own understanding. Is there any way that I might avoid deceiving myself with a substitute? How can I, how should I go about leaning on the Lord? The answer is by talking to yourself. By talking truth to yourself. 
especially by speaking to yourself the truth about your God. How crucial it is to feed our souls with the true propaganda, so to speak, especially about the adequacy of our God. I've shown you a few examples of destructive self-talk, but let me encourage you with a good example of self-talk. Turn to Psalm 42 and 43. You're not going to read all of it, but the author repeats himself a little bit here. Here we have a depressed writer is struggling with an explained turmoil in his soul. He can't make sense of it. Why am I so in despair and so, so um, afflicted? But talking to himself and reminding himself what fights his, is, is what fights his despair. So let's look at verse 5 of, of uh, chapter 42 here. What does he say? He's talking to himself. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? You're going to read these two Psalms and you're not going to find an answer for that. He doesn't know why. He's just depressed. He's just downcast. But then he talks to himself and he says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Hope in God. Don't despair. And then he repeats himself again in verse 11. Same thing. Hope in God. For I will still trust him. Even though I don't understand, I will still trust him. Chapter 43, verse um, 5, he concludes the same way. Why are you in despair, my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him. In fact, let me give you another example here from uh, Psalm 62. And this is from David's own lips. He's doing some self-talk here, some good self-talk. Psalm 62, verse 5 through 8. My soul waits in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. Kind of ironic he's saying that, right? Because his hope was in Philistia for deliverance. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. O God, my salvation, on God my salvation and my glory rests. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Where do you run when you're in despair? You find refuge in your God. Trust in him. He's talking to himself. Trust in him. At all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Now he talks to himself. He talks to other people and saying, we can trust him. We can seek him as a refuge. So I plead with you, lean on your true security. Be careful what you speak to your heart. This is the first exhortation from this godless text. So let's see how David gets even more entangled in the lies of despair. From verses 5 through 12, let's go back to our text here. 5 through 12, we will see David's buying into the deception of self-preservation, the deception of self-preservation. And um, I summarized that, you know, that section with David thinking, look out for number one. Look out for number one. David this time is welcomed in Gath. Right? He, he moved there and he comes with 600 men who... Achish could use as a mercenary force under the guise of giving Achish elbow room or alleviating the drain on expenses for the royal court, David requests to be transferred to one of the outlying towns where he would not be so constantly under Achish surveillance. 
So David took up the quarters at Ziklag instead of Gath. Right, so this is a smart move that he's making here because far away from Achish, he can do whatever he pleases and he can lie about it. Not a right thing to do, but he's looking for his own interests. In verse 5, we read that David even uses, call himself Achish servants, your servant, your servant. The irony continues. David has used this phrase when he's speaking to both the Lord. Right? He's speaking to the Lord and says, I'm your servant. And he, the previous chapter, we even saw that to the anointed king of Israel, Saul. But now he refers to himself as the servant of Achish, as if his allegiance has shifted the location of Ziklag is not well-known, and I think I have a map there. It's not well-known, um, but there is this um, excavation in a Tel Sarah or Tel Es Sharia, whatever how you want to pronounce it. It is the most likely location there in the wilderness of Judah, down in the south, and I highlighted there. And you can see the surroundings, how he was able to raid all those people around that city. He raided, we read in verse 8, the Jeshurites, the Gersites, and the Amalekites. Three people groups are listed as David's victims. The Jeshurites are included in the list of people that the Israelites were to conquer. In Joshua chapter 13, God gave a command to destroy those people in the land because their sin was so great and so awful that it says that the earth was vomiting them. Such great wickedness that they had, that creation was actually acting against them to remove them from the land. But that was their mission, was to remove these people. But they didn't. The Gerzites are mentioned only here in the Old Testament, so we don't know exactly what this people group is, but we know the Amalekites. We know how they mean they are, how mean they are, how hated they are arch enemies of God's that God intends to annihilate. You remember uh, 1 Samuel 15, the king of Amalek, that Saul let him live, and the prophet Samuel came and, and killed him because he had killed pregnant women. These are mean people. So David is avenging. And, and really spurging the land from their existence. Ironically, David, out of expedience, is fulfilling the Lord's wishes more efficiently than Saul has done. Now, there's, I'll comment more into this because I'm not necessarily endorsing everything David is doing here. At Ziklag, David and his men became desert raiders who raided desert raiders. Can you imagine that? These groups, the Amalekites, they were raiders. So he's raiding the raiders. <laughs> he would attack a band, of ra a band of raiders, carry off their livestock and goods, and bring to King Achish the king, uh, to share the spoil. But then there was a, a catch here. He allegedly was plundering. He was alleging that the plunder had come from attacks on Judah, not on the Amalekites, not on the Jezreelites or whatever they are. He's saying that, no, I attacked the, the people of Judah or the, clan, or the clans associated with Judah, verse 10. There was naturally one hitch here. David wiped out any human captives taken so he couldn't risk anyone blowing up his cover. He's snitching on what he was already really doing in Ziklag and beyond. Any human captives, therefore, were put to death. Verse 11, we'll read that. So, so far, so good. David is helping Israel while both dumping, duping Achish and convincing Achish. That is the silver lining of sorts, just as when the ark went to the Philistine territory. Remember chapter 5 through 6, that the ark was taken to the Philistines and they uh, and you think, boy, the, the glory of the Lord has departed. But what happened there? 
The ark afflicted the people of Philistia. God will not be thwarted by the failures of his people. In his providence, he gives David the opportunity to kill the enemies of Israel while stationed in a Philistine outpost and under the, uh, the authority of a Philistine king. Furthermore, the providence even places David in a position of king's bodyguard where the unsuspecting Philistine ruler is vulnerable. In fact, Achish was delighted with David turning turncoat tactics. He really believed in David. We're reading the, the last verse there, verse 12. Achish believed David, saying he has surely made himself odious among his people. Therefore, he's going to become my servant forever. Though David's loyalties remain with Israel, his ruse is successful. He has compromised, but he has compromised his identity. The Lord, uh, the words of Proverbs 14, 12, we just read, might come to mind again as we read David's decision and its development. There is a way that seems right to men. It is not that David didn't think. He surely did. In fact, if we think a bit about David's thinking, we cannot help but understand how Philistia seemed to spell deliverance. The sheer logistic of, logistics of safety and provision for the families probably weighed heavily. I want security for my family. I got to look out for my own interests. Such concerns took the thrill of a hair-raising scapes and a constant living in the shadow of death wears and unnerves a man. And I think it is one of the, the, the lessons I, I'm counseling people and helping them to process suffering in their life. Uh, and you might have faithful believers that they endure and they endure, but there's a point where they gave in. The constant living in the shadow of death wears and unnerves a man. Murder mysteries are only for readers, not for the prey. And David's deception works. For from Ziklag, David attacks, can attack Israel's enemies, does help in Israel, while aligning himself, he is attacking Israelite territory. The whole scheme has been a masterstroke. It is not a faithful, not an act driven by faith. It's nevertheless successful. There's a way that seems right to man. It seems that's all right what he's doing, doesn't it? David believed a lie. Look out for number one. David's wavering faith and desire for security turned him into a cunning liar to save his own skin. The author of Hebrews, and let's turn there. Author of Hebrews chapter 3. And we're looking at verse 12. He warns us of the deception when we're using lies to cover up our own sin. He says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. What was motivating David to take care of himself alone? An unbelieving heart that the Lord was going to be faithful to fulfill his promises. That's why we need one another. That's why we need to remind each other of the truth. He says here, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Is it today? Encourage one another, remind each other that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I cannot avoid but thinking of Peter's betrayal. Of our Lord. In Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 47, 62, we're not going to read it. But in this account, Peter compromises his identity. You will remember that. 
He said, Lord, I'll never, I will never leave you. I'll never betray you. The Lord looks at him. Well, Peter, you know, before the crow, um, you know, sings, what, what is the crows three, three times? Um, you will deny me three times. Peter compromises his identity as a disciple of Christ temporarily because his faith has wavered. And he was afraid. He was in despair. And what spoke out aloud? Look out for number one. His instinct of self-preservation spoke louder. And even before a slave girl that had no, no power to do anything to him, he denied the Lord. In this passage, also, we read that Judas betrays Christ, and Peter, afraid for his own welfare, denies Christ three times. Judas recognizes his failures as a disciple of Christ, but instead of repenting of it, he commits suicide. But Peter weeps bitterly after his denials his denial and finds forgiveness so there's hope for peter there was hope for peter and there's still hope for david i'm glad our story doesn't fin doesn't end here the solution for the deception of self-preservation is seeking refuge on god preservation he is the one that we can run to when we're in trouble we don't need to protect ourselves. Obviously, we want to be wise and not go after danger. So now that we have seen the dejection and the deception of a desperate David, we will see his dilemma in our last couple of verses. And it's what I called here the dilemma's lie. The dilemma's lie. David, however, was so successful at making a fool of Achish that Achish unwittingly would make a traitor of David. He wanted his trusty David contingent in the ranks of Gath in the massive Philistine assault in Israel. He has made himself odious before his people. Of course, he's going to attack them as well. Enemy of my enemy? It's my friend. It came about in those days, verse chapter 28, that the Philistines gathered their armed camps to war for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. And when in doubt, open your mouth. This is what David answered very well. You shall know what your servant will do. Uh, very ambiguous jargon, said to turn his, of a braggadocio to laugh Achish assured. Just watch it and see what I'm going to do. David's plans proceeded perfectly until Achish did the one thing David could not afford for him to do. He laid plans to attack Israel, incorporating David's band into the Philistine forces. It appears that David's show of allegiance to Achish had been too convincing. The conversation between the two reveals that David was still thinking on his feet, though now in danger of a major gaffe. When Achish said, You know, of course, that you and your men are going to go out in the army with me, David replies, Eager. Even, he's a good actor. <laughs> At least with Achish, right? He pretended to be mad in front of him. Now he's lying, come up, all of these subterfuges. David disguised his inner anxiety and replied, very well, then you shall know what I'm, your servant can do. David's braggadocia won him a place where Achish could indeed see what David could do. For the Philistine king appointed David and his men to serve as his personal and permanent bodyguard. This turn of events spelled nothing but bad news for David. 
as the force closest to Achish, there was no way he could aid Israel without being detected. Having boasted so much about his abilities, which we already know is legendary, he sings songs about him, he would either have to betray Achish or else fight against his own people with vehemence and valor. All their years of preparation, all their years of waiting, all, the da- all David's hopes and dreams now rested on the fulcrum of the crucial, this crucial battle. The king had called David's bluff, and there, there seemed to be no escape from the risky path of deception that David has chosen. The author has skillfully built the narrative tension to a heart-pounding peak. Then as almost effective storyteller, he leaves the reader hanging and turns out to other matters. Will David fight against his own people? We won't know until two messages again in, in Samuel because he's going to go away and talk about Saul a little, a little bit, but he will pick up at chapter, uh, chapter 30. In the meantime, David can ponder how to keep from being gored on the horns of a dilemma. Could David be both a betrayal of his own people and a betrayer of Achish? Could he have his cake and eat it too? What will David do in this conundrum? You can't have your cake and eat it too is a popular English idiomatic proverb or figure of speech that I just learned. Um, The proverb literally means you cannot simultaneously retain possession of a cake and eat it too. Once the cake is eaten, it is gone. It can't be used to say that one cannot have two incompatible things. That one should not try to have more than it is reasonable. The Proverbs meaning is similar to the phrases, you can't have it both ways, or you can't have the best of both worlds. David can't be a Philistine and an Israelite at once. Now, if he marches with the Philistines, he will lose credibility, to say the least, in Israel. His decision led him to, point, to a point where he's risking his own kingship over Israel. David's rhetoric would never turn aside the charge that he had loved Philistia and he stabbed Israel. If, however, he plays a fa- plays false at some point, in some way, with Achish and the Philistine Chutzpah, uh, he may find them far more efficient than Saul in disposing of him. There is a way that seems right to man. Luke 16, 13, the Lord warns us, and he's talking about here in the context of of richness and us finding refuge in richness. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. What is the lesson here? You can't serve God and whatever else you're seeking refuge in that is contrary to God's will. You can't have both of both worlds. So in conclusion, even though the text seemed to reflect a certain sympathy and understanding for David, yet the writer does not hide how calculating and ruthless David was while he was a Philistine. David the raider is one thing, but David the butcher is another. In chapter 27, verse 9 and 11, David seems to be practicing overkill even in the costumes of his time. By now, you may have become actually an angry reader. (laughs) You may have been angry at David because over the last number of chapters, you have become pro-David. And you have been moved from by being sad, lot of the afflicted, hunted, servant of God who runs from Saul because Saul is in his frenzy, envy, insists on 
bathing his hands in David's blood. David, you might say, has won your heart. And now he has disappointed you, as most of God's servants will do at some time. You have been betrayed, so it goes. I, I appreciate how uh, Dr. Ralph Davis concludes this portion of the scripture. He says, and I quote, Do you ever think that perhaps the writer is trying to correct your mistake? Yes, you, Bible reader, that you are, may have fallen into the trap of hero worship, of looking on your pet Bible characters and exalting them too highly. Why should you be surprised, shocked, off-ended? Why should you talk about betrayal? The text is saying that this chosen, anointed servant is made of the same stuff as all of the Lord's people. Must we throw out God's kingdom because not only its subjects, but if its primary servants are sinners? Carl um, Gutbrod is right when he says, the text will not allow us to view Saul with only contempt and save nothing but admiration for David. The text resists every attempt to make David the mirror of all virtue. Instead, you must get a grip on grace. The Bible does not claim that God's servants are dipped in Clorox so they will be infallibly sin-free and attractive to you. The living God does not have clean material to work with. And don't get sentimental, he says, when you sing hymns about the potter and the clay, remember it's only sinful, meaning full of sin, clay that the potter works with. We should not criticize the potter because of the clay, but rather marvel that he stoops to work with such stuff. As long as we wallow, however, suddenly, in some idea of human worthiness, we will never understand the Bible, never tremble before this God, and never delight in this God. We must get a grip on grace. Maybe a godless text can do that for us. End of quote. So I'd like to conclude with um, a Psalm of David. We've seen these three lies, and how can we avoid them? And, and, and if I can summarize, all of that is um, by turning, by turning back to the Lord. Psalm 25, David is in a similar conundrum here. We don't know uh, the situation that he's in when he wrote this psalm, Psalm 25. In verse 15, he says, Turn to me. And be, um, verse 15, he says, My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Against the lie of self-preservation, against the lie of deception, of, of feeling discouraged and dejected, against the lie that you can serve two lords, there is a confidence that God can untangle even the mess we make. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look upon my affliction and my trouble, and here is the key. Forgive all my sins. He says, look upon my enemies, and they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Lord, I, 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 can't, I can't protect myself. I can't keep myself safe. But you guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and upright 
uprightness preserve me, for I wait in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with um, humility of heart. As we can put ourselves in the stand to judge David, when we know deep inside that many times we give in to hopelessness, to self-preservation, to deception. And yet you have proved yourself to be the only refuge that we can run to. I do pray, Lord, that your people will be encouraged, that they will be able to bring their sorrows and their afflictions and their despair before you and affirm their confidence that you are the only way out. Not idols, not um, entertainment, none of those things is our way out, but you are. I pray that you would bless our week as we reflect on these truths. In the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.